0: Uh, we've been in Romans chapter 12 now for some time, and we're going to continue there this morning in verses 14 to 21. Um, I'm go ahead and read that text for us this morning, and then we're going to uh, dig into what it has to say to us. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in a harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now most of us in this room, we know what it's like to daydream. We know what it's like to think about something that's either that kind of that ideal state that we have in our minds or something that's out there in the future that we have not yet arrived at. I remember in grade school daydreaming about summer okay right and my, my, that's where my, my oldest child is right now right we just I mean we're four weeks in he's already daydreaming about next summer all right they daydream about summer in middle school maybe you daydream about what it's going to be like to be in high school get a little bit older and more responsibility or if you're in high school maybe you daydream about what college will be like what it'll be like to kind of move out of the house and spread your own wings and live on a campus somewhere right where nobody's checking up on you 24-7 Right? Some of you, if you're, if you're a college student, you start daydreaming about what it's like to actually finish school one day. Right? And you can graduate and have a degree and maybe get a job somewhere when you can begin to make money and live on your own. So you daydream about what that's like, right? Single adults daydream about marriage. Married adults daydream about what it's going like, to be like to have kids. And parents daydream about a nap, okay? <laughs> that's a true story right there. We know, we know what it's like to daydream, don't we? All of us do. Something in the future, some ideal state. And as a pastor, I can tell you that I daydream t- at times as well. I daydream at times as well. And one of the things that I daydream about is to see God do something among us as a people here in the life of this church. Because I, I dream of a church that would be these two things. It would be an honest community of sinners and a hopeful community of saints. It would be both of those things. A place where we we are free to be real, we're free to be open, we're free to be the real us without any mask or any veils over our faces or over our actions, over our desires and our hearts. Those things could come out and we can just be honest with one another about where we are. But we're also hopeful. We're hopeful that God is bigger than where we are right now. And that He's able to take us on the path, on the journey to where He would desire us to be. And so I dream of God raising up an honest community of sinners and a hopeful community of saints here in this church. And I want to be a little of both with you this morning. I want to be honest with you and hopeful with you. And I want to start with the honesty. Last week I said that if you were in a position right now, we talked about leveraging your gifts for the sake of the body. And we talked about how there are times when God's, because God's wired us as an interdependent body, not an independent collection of individuals. That interdependent body, there are times where when you're hurting, like a, a ligament gets torn or a bone gets broken, they set you up in a cast for several weeks in order for you to be able to rest. And so I talked about that last week. If that's where you are, feel free to immobilize yourselves for a season, right? Because that's, that's sometimes what it takes to heal or jumpstart the healing process for you. Or if you're tired, sometimes you just got to stop and catch your breath. And so I need to be honest with you this morning that over the course of these last 12 months for me, I've been both of these. I've been, I've been both of these. I've been hurting and tired. And I've recently, <laughs> through interactions, um, begun to see, I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road and all of a sudden the, the dashboard lights on your, on, on your dash, like, those, those warning lights just start going off, you're like, right, lock it down. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Or some of us just kind of drive right through and they think we're like suggestions, right? And so I've noticed recently there's been some of those, those lights on the dashboard of my own life that have been going off and ways that I've, I've, I've responded in certain scenarios and situations that have really caused me to do a little bit of digging underneath and realize that this, the weariness and the pain over the course of these last 12 months have begun um, to really, I think, give birth to some unhealthy things in my heart. And coming out of last week's message, I had several conversations even leading into last week's message with several individuals um, inside this church and outside this church about where I am right now. Um, and as, as I kind of process through some of those things with them and kind of talking those things out, uh, I've come to the decision that right now for me, um, what is best is that I push pause for a moment. I push pause for a moment and, and catch my breath. And hopefully jump-start some of the healing process in my own soul that needs to take place if I'm going to be a healthy and faithful shepherd and pastor in this church. And so that's for the next four weeks. I'm not going to be preaching here. I'm not going to be in the pulpit. We have four men who are gifted by God and very capable in the life of our congregation, to stand before you and open God's word and say, "Thus saith the Lord. I trust them." Next week, Kevin Wheat will be bringing God's Word to us. The following week, uh, Stanley John uh, will be preaching for us. After that, Ryan is going to be preaching. and Steve Welch will be preaching the W. Welch will be preaching on October 23rd. The plan right now is for me to be back in the pulpit on October 30th. And I just want to go ahead and clarify a few things for you this morning. First of all, I'm I'm not cheating on my wife and she's not cheating on me, okay? Um, Every time the pastor starts talking about things going on in his heart, they're like, oh, Pastor, what's going on? Right? that's not what's happening, Um, I'm not resigning, I'm not stepping away from this ministry, even though my heart is hurting, it's still here, Um, if I am gone at all, over the course of these next four weeks, it's going to be to raise, try and raise money for 2017 in different places, and for what God wants to do here, and so we'll be here, we're not going anywhere, Um, and for those of you who would like more information about where I am right now, and some of those things that are going on in my own soul, I'm happy to share that with you um, in a one-on-one setting. Happy to sit down with you and answer any question that you may have. No questions is going to be off limits, but I'm going to leave that ball in your court. Um, and if you would like t- to visit about those things, I would love to share. Last week in life groups, we talked about one of the ways that we experience true fellowship with one another is when we volunteer information about what's going on in the real condition of our hearts. And I'm happy to do that with anybody who calls this church home. So I just I felt like I needed to be honest this morning. Because I I want to see a place, God, to, to make this church a place where the real condition of our hearts is able to be shared. And we don't have to wear a mask any longer. And we don't have to show up on Sunday mornings and pretend like we're okay whenever really inside we may not be. I would love to see God create an honest community of sinners at Redeemer Church. Now if you're here and you're a guest this morning and you're like, whoa, man, this is a, this is a little much, like, I get that, I do, I do. And there may be people who have been here for a long time who are still uncomfortable with some of the things that I've said this morning. And, and, and I think a part of that is because the pull of our hearts is that we want a leader like Saul. Right, we want one who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. We want someone who's dynamic and has everything together, not someone who is human, <laughs> And if you're looking for a leader like Saul, then this may not be the place for you. But if you're looking for another human being and a place to be safe and to be real, welcome. Come and join us. So I need to be honest this morning. But I also want to be hopeful. Because I still am. I still dream of a church. I still dream of a church that God... Would use to set deep roots and grow wide strong branches in this community where the gospel would flourish where the good news of Jesus Christ living in our place dying in our place rising from the grave ascending to the right hand of the father one day returning to receive to himself all who are his own where the gospel would set deep roots and it would grow strong branches in the nuclear radioactive power of New Testament Christianity it would begin to choke out the presence of nominal North Texas Christianity. It would begin to choke it out and begin to replace it. And one of the ways that I dream of this happening is that I dream of a church where God would raise up a people whose faith moves from the private spheres of their lives to the public spheres of their lives. Right Where it moves from the private sectors of their lives to the public sectors of their lives. In Romans 1:16, the Apostle Paul writes about himself as an apostle, as one who shared the gospel in many places, he says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I dream of a church where that is the reality of our experience on a day-to-day basis, where our faith moves from the private to the public spheres of our lives. See, where Christianity is not a privatized faith, but a public one. It's a public faith that doesn't just gather in a building on Sunday mornings for two hours, but it's a a public faith that influences and infects the other 166 hours of every week that we have. So all 168, right? All 168 hours of the week. Our faith would influence and infect the things that we do. That it would move from this building onto the block in our neighborhoods and with people that we know, that it would move from this building into the boardrooms of our offices and where we're working and employed. That it would move into the classroom, students, and where you go to school and with your friends. And even those of you who are at private schools right now, that there's, listen, just like there are folks who are in the church who have never come to faith in Jesus, there are folks in your private school right now who are not Christians. And so your faith would translate from the private spheres of your life where you gather in here and you come to Bible studies into the public spheres of your life and you actually begin to talk through what you believe and engage in conversation with people. But see, a life, I think one of the reasons that we shy away from that is because a life, a faith that moves from the private to the public spheres, almost inevitably in this particular culture will face opposition, it will produce friction, and there will result in, at times, Persecution. Because at any time, anywhere the gospel sets roots, right, any culture in which the gospel sets roots, there are some things about that culture that it receives, there are some things that it rejects, and there are other things that it redeems. Let me give you an example of this, of how it redeems certain parts of our culture. Some things it receives, some things it rejects, some things it redeems. See, the, let me give you, the, take for instance the, the vision and value for life of freedom in the American culture. In our culture, the way that we understand freedom is that I'm free if and only if there are no restrictions on my life. Right? I get to be a free-range human. Right? There are no fences for me. There are no borders for me. There are no boundaries for me. That's the vision for freedom in this particular culture in which we live. That I'm a free range human, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and there are no boundaries or restrictions for me. And one of the ways that expression of freedom gets worked out in our lives, and on the, on the cultural pages that we're witnessing right now, is in the area of gender and sexuality. Is so There are no boundaries for me in those areas, because I'm free if and only if I am free to do whatever I feel. That's the definition of freedom in our culture. I'm free if and only if I'm free to do whatever I feel. But when the, when the gospel begins to set roots and Jesus does indeed set us free, he sets us free. But he doesn't set us free to do what we feel. He sets us free to flourish inside the God-ordained boundaries and restrictions for our lives. Because see, the Bible doesn't understand the American version of freedom as freedom. It understands the American version of freedom as bondage. That you're in bondage to your desires, you're in bondage to your feelings, you're in bondage to to, to what's going on internally. But the Bible presents freedom in a much different way. And when, when the gospel sets roots and it begins to grow, freedom is no longer I'm free if and only if I'm free to do and be whatever I feel, but now freedom is I'm free if and only if I'm living within the boundaries and restrictions and the borders that the one who has created me has established for me. That's how the Bible views freedom. And whenever we begin to embrace that kind of definition of freedom over and against the Americanized version of freedom, then it's going to begin to create some friction and rubs. Listen, the Bible defines freedom by saying you're free if you live within the restrictions that fit your nature. Within the restrictions that fit your nature. I'm going to break it down for you this way and then we're going to move on. Listen, I've caught a lot of fish in my days. A lot of fish, but I've never caught a single fish that was free outside the water. Never caught a one, right? A fish will flounder and a fish will flop all over the front deck of a boat or the bank of a pond when it's outside the water. Why? Because the, the restriction that fits the nature of the fish is the water. It's free in the water. It is dying outside of it. That's how the Bible presents freedom. That there are certain boundaries and borders and restrictions that God's established that fit our nature. And when we live inside those, we're free. But whenever we reject and spurn those, we're actually in bondage to how we feel in a given moment. And whenever we embrace that biblical vision of freedom as opposed to the Americanized vision of freedom, it's going to create friction. There's going to be rubs. And the question for us is this that we're going to spend the rest of our time together on this morning, is how are we going to respond to that? If we're going to be the church and not just go to church, how will we respond to that friction and opposition and at times persecution that it creates? And our text this morning that we read together as at the outset tells us this, that the way that you and I are to respond as believers in Jesus Christ to the friction, opposition, and persecution that rises from the gospel setting deeper and deeper and deeper roots in our hearts is we're to respond by being advocates for our adversaries. That's how we are to respond. They were to respond as by living as advocates for our adversaries. Look in Romans 12:14. We read it earlier. I'm gonna bring you back to it. Romans 12:14, we read these words: bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Listen, this is perhaps, if you go back, stretch all the way back up to verse 2, where Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, a new way of thinking about who you are and how you interact with people. This is one of the prime indicators that our way of thinking is being renewed. Because the natural state of our minds and the natural state of our hearts is whenever someone raises up as our enemy with, and is adversarial against us and opposes us, and persecutes us is we want to respond in like kind, right? That's just a natural state of, our, of affairs for us as, as a human being. I was talking about this with my kids earlier this week. We actually did this as our memory verse in our house, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Had to sound out the syllables for my daughter because she's not quite there yet with persecute. And so, uh, at five. But I was talking to them about, hey, have you ever had someone do something mean or ugly or rude to you, Right? They're nine and five. So have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had that experience? And they're like, yes. And I said, well, how'd you respond? So we talked through that a little bit. And so we're talking, talking with my daughter and she started talking about these little boys in her kindergarten class who had this little clubhouse on the playground. They wouldn't let the girls in. They were, they were barricading them out, right? That's her life right now. And so she starts talking through all that. And I was like, well, how'd you respond? And she was like, well, I'm always nice to people who are mean to me. I look at her I'm like girl you better stop lying right now because I saw you hit your brother last week whenever he did this or, th- or that and she just she was stuck in her thumb at the time because it was late at night she had her blanket and she just kind of looks up at me behind her thumb and just kind of smiles it's like I know it's the natural state of our hearts and our the affairs of being a human is that we want to respond or we want to return right evil for evil We want to return persecution for persecution, opposition for opposition. Some of you had people who have run your name through the mud and they've ruined your reputation. And so what you want to do is respond with the ruining of their reputation. But what the text actually tells us is that whenever those things occur, and whenever you face those occasions, is that you live as an advocate for your adversaries. You bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I know several ladies, one in the room this morning, who is a, a court appointed special advocate. I think that's the way that that goes. If not, she'll correct me later. But for CASA, and an, an advocate in a legal sense, that what, what she does is whenever there's a case involving CPS and whenever there are, there are, um, they enter into the child welfare system, is that they get assigned as an advocate for that child to, to pre- plead their case, to present their case before the judge for the judge to make a ruling. So they plead the case for the child or for the family even sometimes before the judge in a very legal context. And Paul says here to us, he says, what you're to do is to plead the case of those who are pleading against you. You're to be an advocate for your adversaries. Bless those who persecute you. But how do you do this? I'm going to give you two ways this morning that this flushes itself out in our lives. And the first one is this, it involves what you do to them. It involves what you do to them. Look, Jesus speaks of this elsewhere in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 6, verses 28, 27 and 28, he says this, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now, part of what it means to do good to those who hate you has to do with what I would call responding instead of returning. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. Let me press it a little bit more. It's responding instead of returning. Right? You can return... Opposition for opposition. You can return ruining the reputation for ruining a reputation. You can return words that wound with words that wound. You can return that all day long. That's a natural human inclination of our hearts is to return what's served up to us. But a part of what this involves of being an advocate for our adversaries is not returning but responding. It's responding. So for instance... For instance, instead of returning harshness to those who are harsh with you, you respond to their harshness with gentleness. Instead of returning impatience to those who are impatient with you, you counter their impatience with patience. Instead of returning hatred to those who hate you, you respond to their hatred with love. Instead of, re- instead of returning, right? Um, Uh, greed from those who want to take from you, you you respond with generosity towards them. Instead of returning criticism to those who are critical of you, you respond to their criticism with kindness. Instead of returning treachery to those who are treacherous with you and unfaithful with you, you respond by by being faithful to them. Instead of returning deceit and dishonesty to those who are deceptive and dishonest with you, you you respond with truth. You see, this part of doing good to others is not returning, but responding. In fact, that's what Paul says further down in the text in Romans chapter 12, where he writes these words in verse 19, "Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord." To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep, keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And one of the ways that we are overcome by evil is whenever we, ret- we, sh- we return what is served up to us back to them. And one of the ways that we overcome evil with good is by responding to and countering what's been served up to us. So it involves doing what you do to them, but it's more than that. Because some of you are going, "Yeah, well, now I' just got to ratchet up like I got to turn the wrench of duty in my heart, a little bit harder now to be kind to those who are cruel and critical, to be loving toward those who are hate- hateful. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Because it involves more than what you do to them. It involves what you desire for them. It involves what you desire for them. Jesus in Luke 6:28 says it this way. He says, "Bless those who curse you, pray for those." who abuse you. See, to bless someone who has persecuted you or has cursed you, to bless someone in this way recognizes that God is the ultimate source of blessing, that God is the one who's able to bless, that God is the one who's able to raise up those who have fallen down. God is the one who's able to bless. God's the ultimate source of blessing. And so what I do is whenever someone is cruel to me and I, I, I respond with kindness, but not out of duty, but out of desire, because what I want to see in their lives is not God, not their condemnation from God, but their transformation by God. That's what I want to see. That's what I desire to see. That's a part of the renewal of the mind, right? We're thinking differently about those who would oppose us, about those who would criticize us, about those who would be cruel towards us, about those who would be greedy with us, about those who would be dishonest with us. We're thinking differently about them. We recognize there's something going on internally that's causing them to do that. And What I desire is not their condemnation, but their transformation. I want to see God change them, so I get on my knees and I pray for them. I pray for them. I pray for God to do something in them that only He's able to do. And I'm not able to do it. I can, I can respond instead of returning. But only God only God, can radically change their heart. And that's what I want to see for them. So I want to see God save them and mark them out by His mercy. I want to see God sanctify them and make them into the image of Christ. I want to see God send them as those who've been brought back from from death, death to life, as a living testimony and witness to his grace and goodness. See, that's, that's Christianity. It, Christianity is not responding out of duty, but it's responding out of desire to see God work. So it involves what you do to them, but it also what involves what you desire for them. Do you pray for your enemies? For those who oppose you. Do you pray that God will get them? Or do you pray that God will change them? Listen, if we, if, if we will do this, if we will live as advocates for our adversaries and respond instead of returning because we desire to see God change and transform them from the inside out. If we will do this, what, one of the results of it will be is that in this church, that we will become a church that is not only in the city, but it is for the city. It's not only a church in the city, but it's a church for the city. Listen, in December 2015, those of you who were here, you know that we moved locations from Sabine Creek Ranch down off of 276 here to Highview in an attempt to get to a location, I told somebody the other day, that had more people than cows in the general proximity. Okay, That's, that, that was a part of why we came where we came. All right. One of the the factors that weighed into that. So you could say that we moved from the country into an expanding and developing city. So we're now a church in the city. We're now a church in the city. But the question for us is not will we be a church in the city, but will we be a church for the city? Because there's a difference between those two things. See, we can change our zip code and still be very unzealous to see God work. So, will we be a church in the city or a church for the city? There's a text in Jeremiah chapter 29 that this has really shaped the way I think about this to a large degree. In Jeremiah 29, God has sent His people into exile in Babylon, and they're there on the outskirts of Babylon, and they've got false prophets that are telling them, "Hey, listen, man, you're, it's going to be like a hotel stay for you." You're only going to be here a couple of years and then god's going to break the back of nebuchadnezzar he's going to release you and you're going to go back to the land and enjoy that so listen don't get too settled here don't get too settled here and then jeremiah says man that's awesome but that's not what god said in fact jeremiah warns the people about listening to the false prophets And in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 9, Jeremiah delivers a word from the Lord, and he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And then in verse 7 he says, But seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile and pray to, the Lord for, uh, pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. See, the prophets and diviners among them were saying, Avo- right, avoid. This isn't going to last very long. I just kind of set up shop and just waited out. A couple of years, you're going to be back in the land. They were like, just avoid. The Babylonians wanted them to come in and assimilate. Just become like them. Worship their gods and take their their, their culture and and, and engage in everything that they engaged in. But God said what you need to do is advocate. I don't think that's a word, but maybe it is. Um, You need to be an advocate. right? Seek the welfare of the city that you're in. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. If the city prospers, then you prosper. See, we we have a choice before us. Are we going to be a church that's just now in the city, in general proximity to people, or are we going to be a church that is for those people who are far from God, who have heard the name of Jesus maybe, but never actually met him? And for those whose hearts are hardened and dry, will it be a church that's for them? see a church that is in the city what's the difference let me give you a few let me run down a few things what's the difference between a church that's in and for the city a couple of things a church that is in the city gathers in a location to occupy a building while a church that is for that city scatters from that building with hearts filled with love for God and love for people who are all around them a church that is in the city is often irrelevant to those who are around it, while a church that is for the city has high degrees of relevance to the people who live in their proximity. A church that is only in the city is often made up of people who think, well of course, right, I'm a Christian. My parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, of course I am. But a church that is for the city is often filled with people who look in the mirror and go, I can't believe I'm a Christian. I never would have thought it in a million years. A church that is in the city is often filled with the good, fine, respectable, and upstanding citizens in the neighborhoods around her, while a church that is for the city is filled with people who have a past. It's filled with, it's filled with some of y'all used to be kinds of people, right? Right? <laughs> It's filled with I used to be kinds of people. As Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He reached down, brought us up, And Paul says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, a church that is for the city is filled with people who used to be. Who used to be malicious, who used to malign, who used to cheat, who used to lie, who used to fornicate, who used to do all these things, Paul says, we ourselves used to be this, but God, rich in mercy, reached down and he saved us and he's begun to change us and transform us into the kind of people who are now freely justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ so that we're being sanctified into his image and we're no longer who we used to be even though we're not yet who we will be. A church that is for the city is filled with those kinds of folks. Not just the good, fine, upstanding citizens who surround her. A church that is in the city only often buys into the us against them narrative being, being distributed in our culture all over the place. But a church that is for the city writes a new story, a, new, a kingdom kind of story where it says, no, the church is for the city, not against her. I see, if if we, as God's people, would live as advocates for our adversaries and begin to bless those who persecute us by what we do and what we desire for them, God might be pleased to turn us into a church that is for all kinds of, some of y'all used to be kinds of people. I still get excited about that. I hope you do too. The last question is this. Where are we gonna get? Where are we gonna get the motivation and the power to do this? Where's that gonna come from? Because right, this goes completely against the natural grain of our thoughts and of our heart. Where are we gonna get the kind of the power that we need to be advocates for our adversaries? Is that the only place that you're gonna find that power? The only place you're gonna find that kind of the grace that you need to do that is by saying that our God Himself is an advocate for His adversaries. He's an advocate for his adversaries. See, toward the end of C.S. Lewis' uh, work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a brilliant portrayal of Jesus in the the figure of Aslan. And if you remember the story, if you hadn't read the story, hadn't seen the movie, but in that story, there's these four um, siblings, and one of them named Edmund uh, betrays all of his siblings and ultimately betrays Aslan to the white witch for a piece of candy. (laughs) For a piece of candy. He sells him out right down the river. And because of his sin against his brothers and sisters, and because of his sin against the king of Narnia, Edmund deserves death. He deserves to die. That's what the law commanded. And so the white witch comes rolling in with all of her entourage there in front of Aslan and all of his army. And she demands the blood of the child. She demands the blood of the child. Because the law demands the blood of the child. And Aslan, in all of his splendor and grandeur and might and power, invites the witch into a side conversation in which they wrestle through what's going to take place. And at the end of that conversation, Aslan makes the announcement, the witch has renounced her claim upon the blood of the son of Adam. And everyone rejoices But they don't know why. And I I love, I love the scene and the way that the movie depicted it. When the witch turns as she's walking away and says, How will I know? How will I know that you will be faithful? How will I know that you will uphold your end? And when you read the book, it doesn't have quite the same dramatic effect, but in the movie, he opens his mouth and he just roars, this earth-shaking roar. As he speaks on behalf of the one whose place that he would take. And she turns and walks away. You see, as the story unfolds, then he is led to the stone table and he is bound and he is shaved. And the white witch raises, uh, raises the dagger and drives the stake through his heart. And he breathes his last. See, Jesus was an advocate for his adversaries. Do you know that he was that for you? The Bible tells us that he was. 1 John, chapter 2. The apostle writes these words, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He turned aside God's wrath. For our sins. He absorbed the debt that we owed. And paid it in full. Listen. When we were caught red handed. As criminals in the courtroom of God. What God did. When we hadn't the money to pay. For a defense attorney. is That one was assigned to us. And the one that was assigned to us. John says. Is the righteous one in whom there is no flaw, in whom there is no defect, who is perfect and sinless and pure. And he stood in our place to plead our case before the Father by the spilling and shedding of his own blood. Jesus was an advocate for his adversaries. He loved us while we were yet his enemies. And so this morning, the only place that you're going to find the power, the only place that you're going to find the grace that you need, is by seeing that our God is one who pleads the case for you. He has pled for you. Will you plead for them? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to close with these two things. If you're not a Christian, and you listen to this and you're going, man, that sounds, there's no way that I could do that. And you're right, there's no way that you could do that. There's no way that you can do that to live as an advocate for your adversaries. You can't. Not apart from, not apart from God changing the internal structures of your heart. As you come to trust Jesus Christ, that you see that he was your advocate at the cross and you come to trust him you can treasure him above all things. Have you ever crossed the line of faith? You don't even know maybe why God brought you here this morning, some of you. And you find this truth to be undesirable and you find it to be unpalatable and you find it to be impossible. And the reason is because your heart has never been melted by the advocacy of Jesus. So it doesn't taste good to you to bless those who curse you. You don't desire to do that. And what you need, what you need is your heart to be melted by his advocacy in your place. And if you have questions about that this morning, I would love to visit with you about them afterwards. And if you're a Christian this morning, here's what I want to call you to do, to remember and rely. Remember that there is one who stood in your place, one who died in your place, one who lived in your place, one who's risen from the grave who now plea, His blood pleads your innocence before the Father. And rely on His grace. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, that whenever this word goes out, there's a desire that has awakened in you. But you go, you know what? I'm incapable of myself of doing this. And you're right, you are. But the Holy Spirit is able. The Holy Spirit is able to produce change and even And dig up even the most hard and fallow ground. If you find that desire within you to do this, remember and rely. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I thank you personally for the advocacy of your son on my behalf that he pled my case when I was caught red handed as a criminal. And brought before you as the judge, that your son stood as my attorney, and that he defended me with his very life. And God, there are those in the room this morning who have never who have never crossed the line of faith, and they never come to trust in Jesus, they never come to treasure Jesus. I pray this morning that you might save them, not according to their works of righteousness, and that their story three years from now would be that they they were someone who used to be. And Father, for those of us in the room who are right now those who used to be, every day would you help us remember that you defended us even while we were your enemies. So that we would not return evil for evil but we would overcome evil with good by responding out of a changed heart, with a changed mind. And that we would rely upon your grace to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.